Brave Blue World is a powerful new documentary about water challenges and solutions that is now available on Netflix. The film, co-produced by Paulo Callahan, founder and CEO of water innovator Blue Tech Research, provides an honest and optimistic view into the innovations and technologies already in place today that could solve the global water crisis with the right support from companies, governments, and nonprofit organizations. Brave Blue World, which features actors and philanthropists Matt Damon and Jaden Smith, is also narrated by Liam Neeson, with all three celebrities sharing their personal comments about the importance of the message behind the film. Xylem's president and CEO, Patrick Decker, is also featured throughout the film, highlighting the company's prominence in the conversation around solving the global water crisis. Today's episode provides a behind-the-scenes look into the making of the film and the change it hopes to inspire. Enjoy the show. Well, I am thrilled to be uh, joined by Paul O'Callaghan, founder and CEO of Blue Tech Research and co-producer of the breakout documentary film of the year, Brave Blue World, currently featured on Netflix. Um, I watched the the film a few times and I really enjoy how uplifting and encouraging it is in the face of such a dire global situation. Um, I think there's some really great things happening around the world driven by some very dedicated, smart, passionate people. And it was great um, to see that you invited Xylem and Patrick Decker to be part of it. Um, So before I carry on too much here, I just um, want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for taking the time to be here today. And um, uh, there's a lot to cover, but I think I'll start with the basics, uh, including if you can tell us a little bit more about your organization, Blue Tech Research. Sure, Amanda. Listen, thank you so much for having me here today. It's a pleasure. So look, a little bit about Blue Tech Research. We're a research organization, as the name implies. We provide water technology market intelligence. And, you know, really, if we've got a superpower, it's we aim to make things simple. Because there's an incredible amount of information out there about the water sector, an amazing amount of technologies, multiple markets, and our role is to help people make better decisions. If you could sum it up, it's to make more efficient use of capital so that we can all make a difference through the work that we do. And our role is to provide insights and intelligence on what are the latest emerging technologies, what are the the new trends we should be tracking that are opening up, how is the sector evolving and changing. Um, You know, our flywheel as a business is that we have fantastic clients. And that's the single biggest thing that drives the business because they push us to do better work. And that, that creates a virtuous circle. So it's, it's a fabulous place to be where you're interacting with the leading water companies, leading investors, universities globally from Australia to Japan, Europe, North America. And it puts us, I guess, an advantage point where we can see a lot of different parts of the water sector. And I think perhaps that was why we could also see the opportunities to tell alternative stories about water when it came to the documentary film as well. So water must have always been a passion for you to basically establish Blue Tech Research and then decide you wanted to create Brave Blue World. It it really has been, Amanda. Like When I left university as a young graduate, I, I traveled to Malaysia and I was ready for the real world and I had, you know, finished with academia and I volunteered with the World Wildlife Fund, the WWF, and I worked on highland rainforest projects in Malaysia. And through that work, I became aware of the interrelationship between water and forests and how they purify the water. And and that got me into the space. And I went back and I studied for a master's degree in Scotland in water. 
and was fortunate to work alongside Anita Roddick, who was a pioneer in the body shop cosmetics uh, manufacturer back in the late 1990s. And I've never looked back. Um, I think if you're a curious person, there's, there's no end of um, things to explore in water. So it is a passion. And I have built a business research practice. I've just finished a PhD or I'm shortly to defend my PhD uh, in water innovation. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, congratulate me on December 9th. But, uh, <laughs> okay. So then um, what can you tell us about how Brave Blue World came to be? I mean, why did you decide to make this film? Well, it allowed me to put together probably quite a lot of different elements um, together. I, I'm Irish, as you can tell by my accent. And, you know, we're generally known for being storytellers, writers, singers. Uh, and that's definitely a part of, of me. Definitely. I've always been involved in music and the arts and drama. But you focus on the science and the engineering, you know, which is the core to my career. And yet I could see that with all the fantastic work that we were doing in the sector, perhaps what we needed to do was to really engage with people. Because that's what I could see when I traveled to places like Singapore and the awareness among the average person is so high about water that if you get into it, when I get into a taxi cab in Singapore on my way in from the airport, they'll start talking to me about water when they know why I'm there. And straight away, they're so excited to tell me about the four taps in Singapore and the new water plant. And I found that's incredible. And if you can get to that level of awareness, and the same was true in the Netherlands. I was at an airport and I, I was putting my report through the x-ray machine and the lady who was scanning it said, ah, you're in water. She said, in the Netherlands, we're all in the water. Essentially, they're underground or they're below sea level in water. So the idea was if you could communicate outside of our industry to a broader audience and the power of storytelling is a great way to do that because as human beings, that's how we best absorb information. It's empathizing with another human being, connecting with them. And that's so powerful because that's what brings us all together as a society and allows us to, to do fantastic things when we're channeled. The, and the idea, you know, in many ways would have remained only an idea were it not for a number of, I would say, brave partners who took a leap of faith and said, you know what, we love this idea. It's positive, it's optimistic. And they got behind it and backed it, which was incredible, really, because it was a new journey for everybody who was involved in the project. And we didn't know how it would evolve. Yeah, and there it's kind of a star-studded cast. I mean, obviously, we're part of it, Xylem. Um, but <laughs> I wanted to... Uh, ask you how Xylem and Blue Tech became partners in making this film. Well, you know, Blue Tech has worked with Xylem for many years. I think Xylem was possibly one of the first clients actually that Blue Tech ever had, certainly one of the first three. So we've had a long-standing partnership with Xylem. And I think there was a connection between ourselves and Xylem and indeed all the partners. You know, your tagline, I guess, is let's solve water. And that was fundamentally the message of the film. We can do this. There's an alternative story that's more hopeful and optimistic. So I met with um, Randolph Webb in Japan and Tokyo, and I was telling him about what we were doing. And he was telling me about the partnership with Manchester City that Xylem had. And he was so keen and supportive, even though it was very early on. And that was really the start of it. And then we were just delighted that Xylem was able to support. And we met with Patrick Decker at Stockholm International Water Week last August. God, it seems like longer, but it was only last 
Yeah. Did you know Randolph changed his last name to Waters? You know, I was just going to say that. I didn't know his <laughs> Yeah. That's, isn't that a great story? Well, you know, it, it is. And I was wondering, was it a, a family name or, or, but, and I wasn't sure how official it was, but you know, there's something called nominative determinism where, you know, if you're called John Baker, that you might end up working in the, the baking industry or something like this. It happens from time to time. Um, so it's fabulous. It's a true endorsement <laughs> of his passion and commitment. I thought that was great. Yeah. So it's you're talking a lot about these partnerships and how is the world of water philanthropy sort of connected? Is it like a relatively tight knit group of people and organizations? Is it just thinking about all the the folks that came together in in the in the documentary? Um, is it was that a real challenge to get all those folks together, or how how does that work? Well, there was a tremendous amount of goodwill. I found that, you know, there's only a few things in my life that I've embarked on where I felt that very much the universe was willing this project into existence, that every door seemed to be an open door. And, you know, when we knocked and we reached out to water.org, they were really supportive and responsive. And I think the message was just one that everybody felt that it was about the right time that we all started to focus more on solutions and those stories. So, and Jaden Smith's organization, 501c3, again, great to get a young activist um, involved, very committed young man and very earnest. So it, they were fabulously supportive. I think the overall world of philanthropy and water is actually quite a separate universe to the world of technology providers. And there are many ways those worlds don't often connect. If you attend, for example, Stockholm International Water Week, it's quite NGO-focused. This, in a way, allows us all to find something common, which is this idea of it's very situationally specific what we need to do. And whether it is in Africa, which is very much often led by NGOs and philanthropies, or whether it's in Flint, Michigan, there are commonalities to those stories. Absolutely. I think, you know, as I was watching the film, you know, a common thread that runs through this for me were the solutions that were presented throughout the film um, address specific problems that are faced locally. So um, what do you think this says about the global water crisis in general and our collective approach to solving it? Well, I think everybody who's involved in the sector would agree there is no silver bullet for water. There's no one technology that's going to arrive that will suddenly help us to solve the global water crisis. It's so situationally specific um, because sometimes you're dealing with drought, sometimes you're dealing with flooding, other times it's a quality issue. But the common thing was though, whether we were in Chennai in India, where they were facing day zero or Mexico city, which was sinking under its own weight as they drew down groundwater, or in Kenya, where they're pulling water out of the air or the atmosphere to provide water for children's orphanage there, the common denominator was that people were open to doing things differently. And they were open to change. And whether that was building a sanitation economy to create value from providing sanitation um, or going towards a zero water discharge factory, like what L'Oreal was doing. Um, everybody was willing to push the envelope a little bit. And the exciting piece was, I think we looked upon those stories as lighthouses. You might notice that image popped up a few times. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. yeah, and it's a lovely image because it's something that, I think it was George Bernard Shaw said that it was one of the most 
um, altruistic creations that man has ever made. It, it's there for one reason, one purpose is to, to serve and guide us to safety. So together those stories paint a picture and that was the idea of Brave Blue World. It's a futuristic world, but it's actually not that futuristic. Like everything we saw was happening already. So it was kind of cool to, and even for me, I mean, I've been in the sector for 20 years, but I learned an awful lot from the process as well. For sure. Yeah. Um, what kinds of things are, uh, are already taking place in order to bring some of these technologies that are presented in the film um, more accessible or commercially viable? Well, as many people would have said in the film, we have the solutions. It's just a matter of bringing them to bear on the problem and doing it faster and accelerating that. The key part is people, because we have the technologies. When we visited with Orange County in California, Mahul Patel shared with us that when they started the project of water reuse, they were told this is a communications project. It's not an engineering project. And they had to win the hearts and the minds of the local population. Was the, that was the biggest part of it. Um, it was risky and they had to be very open and very honest with people and, and hope that through that honesty, they would build trust. So a part of it is being open and honest with people and also getting people to want better. You know, you look at currently in California and with, when they experience the effects of climate change, be it through forest fires or droughts, people then begin to become really open to wanting to go towards renewable energy. It's no longer something that you feel you have to do. It's something you want to do. So making these types of solutions, things that people say, wow, that is actually really cool. Gee, I didn't know we could do that. If you can kind of create that energy, then you're halfway there because then the policymakers are going to go, okay, well, we, we better, uh, you know, we better listen up here and, you know, support this. And policy is very important. And we saw that in California, particularly in San Francisco, to allow change to happen. So there's a number of things need to come together. It certainly is the policy, the finance, the technology and the people. To hear more discussions about challenges and trends in today's water industry, tune in to our other shows on Solving Water, a Xylem podcast, including In the Field with Gould's Water Technology about issues impacting the residential and agricultural markets, Through the Water Cycle, a series reviewing every aspect of the water utilities segment from treatment to monitoring and reuse, and the Bell & Gossip podcast focused on HVAC and plumbing systems for commercial building services. Stream, download, and subscribe for these episodes and more. Okay, so then of those things, what is, in your view, the biggest barrier um, to bringing these technologies forward? Is it is it the communications factor, the, you know, the, the, the yuck factor, they call it, around water reuse? Is it um, infrastructure, funding, what, what do you think is the biggest barrier? Well, I think in one sense, or we're victims of our own success in this industry, in that we provided safe drinking water at the turn of the last century in the developed world. Unfortunately, it's not the case in the developing world where there are still a billion people that don't have access to drinking water or safe water. But in many parts of the world, we did such a good job of solving the problem that it disappeared from public view. It's out of sight, out of mind, it's underground, and, and therefore people switch off. So a key thing is to make people know that there, there is a problem. It is closer than you think. It's 
quite likely that it's it will it is going to get worse because of climate change, population increase, aging infrastructure, but also at the same time the good news is that you can solve it um, and getting people to be in some ways willing to accept that we need to change and that perhaps it is time that we considered maybe having a reuse system in our city or considering why can't we go to carbon neutrality when we treat our wastewater. To accelerate it, I personally think that that is the biggest obstacle is literally what's between our two ears. We're, we're thinking constrained. Sure. And I would, I would guess that, you know, the developed, the developed world, because it's out of sight, out of mind, and we're so accustomed to having easy access to clean, safe water, um, that there's no necessity sort of driving that urgency. Whereas in like Singapore, you're saying, I mean, <laughs> they're a country and an island um, and they have limited, they just, it's just the, their way of life. They have limited uh, freshwater resources. So they have to do what they can um, with what they have. Mm-hmm. Singapore geopolitical issue um, were at one point heavily reliant on Malaysia, their next door neighbor to supply that water. And of course the future of Singapore as the island state was dependent on that. So they wanted to become more resilient and diversified. That was their story. You know, stories in Israel are different, the Netherlands, Australia are different, uh, city by city, town by town, it does vary. Uh, but I do think that even in terms of quality, even if we live in next to the Great Lakes, where, you know, for all intents and purposes, we're not going to run out of water. If you're near Lake Michigan, not, not in the foreseeable future. <laughs> but, but there's quality issues, though, which people need to be aware of, that we could un- unknowingly cause nutrient enrichment of those waterways that could cause algal blooms so, or flooding, for example, sea level rise, and even the problems with, with leaking pipes and sewers. So they, they're never too far away. Sure, that's true. I do live like right by Lake Michigan also ah, in Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, cool. so shifting gears a little bit, uh, we have a program um, within Xylem called Essence of Life. And um, one of the things uh, that I know about that program is that we've um, been exploring partnerships in terms of microfinance. And it's just such an interesting concept to me because it seems like pretty fundamental to bring water um, to communities in need, among other critical resources. Um, how do you see microfinancing fitting into the future of solving the global water crisis? It was fascinating in the film, wasn't it, to see it? Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And it's such, as I think it was Trevor Noah commented upon when he was interviewing Matt Damon Gary Weiss, it's such a simple idea. It's amazing no one thought of it before. And they said, yeah, it is. You see, it's, it's hard to imagine that you know, what stands between many people, be they in the Philippines, India, or elsewhere, and access to water could be $300. Well, that's like $20,000, you know, for, for somebody in another part of the world, and you, you need to go and get a loan from the bank. And it, it gives them time back. The beautiful thing about that story is they now no longer will get sick, so they don't lose those days to school or they don't lose those days to work. So it allows them to go back into the workforce and then they can actually pay those loans back. Um, And I think that is also part of what fascinates me is we need to think differently about how we solve these problems. If we think about 1850 in North America or Europe, we were at the same stage back then as somewhere like Nigeria is today. And we didn't 
you know, we didn't move in one move from 1850 to 1950. It, it happened bit by bit. And oftentimes it's through creating value, innovation, services, microfinance is a part of that, but small little businesses pop up. And sometimes those businesses find that they can provide water quicker. They're more nimble than maybe the government. That's what's the, one of the biggest challenges that Africa faces is their populations growing, urbanizations increasing, and governments struggle to be able to move that fast. Where small little businesses can. And if you can bring a little bit of microfinance to bear, because these people, have an ability to pay and they would love to. And oftentimes the tragedy is they actually pay more water for than you or I do, right? If you look at um, you know, how fortunate we are, we're probably paying less than some of these people. Okay. Yeah, I thought I thought it was super interesting. And it sounds like water.org, that's a big part of what what they're doing, um, are making these microfinance loans. So I just, you know. I'm glad to see that it's continuing to kind of move throughout the world and not just for water, but for other things as well. Well, it's great that Zylem's taking an interest in it. I think there's a, a great opportunity there. And, um, you know, I mean, you're fortunate when you're, if you're near Lake Michigan, you're fortunate, right? It's relatively straightforward to get good quality water. Um, but in some of these places, we need to have those types of initiatives. And it, it came from, you might know a guy called Muhammad Yunus, he invented this concept or he's attributed with it where he would provide a loan to somebody to buy a sewing machine. And then once they had the sewing machine, they could earn a living and they could pay back the loan for the sewing machine. That was one of the, the earliest examples of this microfinance model in action. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. I think he won a Nobel Prize for it, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I guess well, I should I uh, read up on that a little more. <laughs> No, I didn't know much about him either because he, he wasn't in my realm or my universe. Um, but I, I, as I learned more about microfinance, I kind of followed it. And um, I've, I've never heard him speaking, but apparently he's, um, he's quite inspirational. Wow. So you've been talking about all these different parts of the world, the Netherlands, um, Malaysia, Africa, California. How did you find, like, what was the process that you, that you used to find these people and technologies that were featured in the movie? Amanda, the funny thing is, if, if we look back on the finished film now, at least 50% of the stories in there were not on the storyboard when we started. So it, it truly was a journey in that sense. It was somewhat organic. And I was very fortunate that the film producers and the directors were willing to be flexible and that we went into it with, okay, we knew that we wanted to tell global stories and we wanted to show them operation in different settings, at different scales, that much was clear. But when we would get to one location, we might learn something that would lead us to another location. So when we went to Spain to an advanced membrane research center that DuPont had, they told us about this amazing project in Tirupur in India, where textile mills had gone to complete zero liquid discharges. Oh, we'd love to go and see that. And so the film crew said, sure, okay. And like literally within two weeks, you know, you're, you're, you're on a plane to India. So it, it was fabulous from that perspective. Likewise, when we engaged with L'Oreal, they looked around and they said, we think Mexico will be a great location. So because of, it's a mega city, it's 10 million people. Water is very important to, to the future of Mexico City. So it seemed like a good place to explore that story. So we found them by talking to people. And that's one of the things that the partners helped us with. 
they opened up doors to help us learn about different solutions, whether they were in Chile or India. And in fact, many of those stories we still have to tell. And, and Xylem was a great partner in that way as well, in opening up our minds to different solutions in different parts of the world. How long did it take to make the film? Well, ostensibly, we had about 30 to 35 days of filming. And those were, that took place over a period of eight to nine months. So we did some initial pilot shoots in Singapore in September 2018, but we really began in earnest in Davos in January. We got a call from water.org and they said, uh, can you be in Davos in January? He said, yeah, absolutely, we can be in Davos in January. So um, suddenly we were all making our way through the snowy landscapes of Switzerland and getting 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 started. And after that, then we were on the road every, every few weeks, really, to different continents, different countries until August. And at the same time, the production had started. So the guys went into the studio and they started cutting and editing from really July onwards. And we worked then up until the launch in December, where we added in the narration from Liam Neeson, you know, quite late, really, in the whole process. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think there's a story that goes along with how Liam Neeson became the narrator of the, the film. It was like someone knew someone and he was all excited to do it or something like that. <laughs> there's a lot of stories like that, actually, in the courses of the film. Um, a lot of serendipity. Um, you could say luck in some ways. We reached out to... To, yeah, to contact Liam Neeson's and he looked at it and he said, you know what, this is an important project. He said, I really want to do this. And he was very gracious, went into the studio in New York and uh, recorded the narration and had all sorts of stories to tell us. You know, as he was doing it, he'd break off and tell us a story about a movie he made in Chicago and now we had to do a Chicago accent because he was narrating the story at the, uh, at our, the MWRD plant in Chicago. So it was fun. And my whole office was like literally crowded around the microphone to hear Liam Neeson's voice was so surreal for everybody. Um, and he was, he was fun. And then we had to get him back because Netflix wanted to make a few tweaks to the film, which were great suggestions. And we were delighted to work with them on it. But it meant that we had to go back and redo some narration. And it was during COVID-19. And they said, well, look, Liam's not going to studio currently. Everything's locked down. I said, okay, well, maybe we can do it at his house in upstate New York. So sure enough, the crew headed up to upstate New York with the equipment. And I think one day a hurricane came and his power went. So we had to delay it. And it all this drama was going on. Um, and then when we got him on the phone, he, he was super excited again because he'd seen the final cut of the film. And he said, look, every child, every school child, every college kid should see this film, which is a quote we use. And then the other funny thing that happened was we were looking to include some music for you two at the very end of the film in the credits. And we were working our way through the approvals process, but it hadn't quite got through all that paperwork yet. And Liam said, you know, I love the U2 song, he said. And I sent Bono a text message. <laughs> and he said, I told him I really liked the, his music. And I went, oh, well, I, I, I wonder what Bono's going to say, because, you know, he's going to wonder what this is all about. And sure enough, right. we got a message back and uh, he said, yeah, Bono was very pleased that you're using his music in the film. And it did help to, it helped to smooth it over and get it over the line. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Wow. I think I'm almost as excited about that as anything else, to be honest. I'm a long time U2 fan. So. <laughs> well, um, 
it's really great how that all came together. And there is sort of this magic connection, I think, among the Irish, um, from what I can tell. Excuse me. So um, it it had perhaps somewhat. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Netflix, uh, you know, can you tell us about pitching the film to Netflix, what that was like? Yeah, it was a real insight, right, into a whole other world, the world of Hollywood and production. And again, we were fortunate that somebody had worked with Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, and they shot him a short note and said, look, Reed, this might be worth you taking, uh, casting your eye over. So he put it on to his, his content people. Um, but like a lot of things, Netflix are always being approached every week, every day with films and content. And we had... You know, maybe the untold story there is we had three no's from Netflix before we got the yes. Wow. Yeah. So oftentimes the first reaction is, look, um, we're, that's interesting. Keep in touch with us. You know, check back in. And you say, yeah. And then maybe two or three months later, you check back in and you keep a discussion going. And then on one call, they said, look, we really love the film. Would it be possible for you to change one or two things to have stronger calls to action at the end? That was one thing. We said, that's a really good suggestion. So we worked with them to tweak it. And then it became an incredible process because once that started, the Netflix machine kicks into gear. And now you've got a graphics design agency, you know, one of a group that did the artwork for Frozen, the movie. Wow. And they're, you know, it's incredible. And they're working on the hero images and they're adapting it for different people and their preferences. And you have all this value add support that Netflix bring to the table. Um, fact that they can subtitle it in 29 languages you know amplifies global reach so and there's a lot to deliver a film to netflix so again even that in itself became another um yes another like the like the swan you know we might have been gliding along the surface but the the, the feet were <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, for sure yeah um I just have a few more questions for you, Paul, and if you're okay with that. Um, this has just been a really interesting conversation. Um, <clears throat> every description that I've read about Brave Blue World, and you even mentioned it um, in earlier in our discussion today, um, I, I hear or read the term optimistic. And was that an intentional production choice prior to making the film that you wanted it to be this optimistic story or was this something that just kind of uh, came out or was discovered throughout the making of the film? Well, I, I think the idea was to tell an alternative type of story. So there are many stories in the media in different forms, which outline a crisis that, which is true, there is a crisis, but if you only focus on that side of the story, people can become a little bit despondent and they feel, oh, there's nothing we can do or there's nothing that I can do to get involved. And yet everywhere I looked, all I could see was solutions. (laughs) So I was saying, hey, there's actually a different story here. And maybe we should start to tell that story as opposed to this doom and gloom story. And the film production crew at one point were amazed after about three different locations. They said, gee, they said, "You, you water guys, you're incredibly on message. Because everybody they asked would say to them, we have the solutions. And it wasn't like we told anyone to say that, you know, I mean, but, but that's the, that is how people feel because we know we can solve this. 
Um, but we had to, I think the discovery through the firm was that we had to tell the story through people because that was how we could bridge outside of our world to a broader world. And what was really heartening for me, I mean, when I, when it finally went on to Netflix, that was a real, it got, my, um, I got home and my wife had a party and she had put red streamers all down the door and the kids were dressed in red and black, the Netflix colors and there was popcorn. <laughs> and, and then it really finally hit me that it's actually there. And side by side with, you know, My Octopus Teacher and David Attenborough's documentary. And then I was getting messages from my mother-in-law who watched it three times and my nephew who's eight who loved it. And I was going, okay, I, I think we've managed to bridge outside of water. And that was, that was the real goal. That's great. That's really great. Anything else that was very surprising to you while you were filming? One of the more things that just popped for you? How good Patrick Decker is on camera. He <laughs> <laughs> was really, really on point. I mean, in terms of messaging and delivery, it was so sharp and crisp that um, when we went back to look at it, it was like, yeah, that is a really good way of summing up the water crisis. But I know a joke aside, I mean, he, he was excellent and very cooperative. Um, the surprising thing, I think, is that the overwhelming tide of a grassroots movement of support and positivity that we found that is going to ensure the success of the film. So it really is now about everybody telling one other person or two other people, and then hopefully perhaps it'll be shown in a school or in a university. And that, that builds up that momentum and there's a that it catalyzes conversation, it catalyzes debate in local situations where people may have a different experience, but they may relate to certain aspects of it. Sure. Um, so really, what's what's next for you? Um, what's next for Blue Tech Research, um, uh, Brave Blue World, maybe a, a follow-up or a, a sequel to the film? Um, you know, I, I know that there's the Brave Blue World Foundation. So maybe you could tell our listeners how we can, you know, get involved and support this message, this mission. Yeah, the, the, the Brave Blue World Foundation is a not-for-profit uh, registered in Canada. And it was the vehicle we established in order to enable the film to, to come into existence. And its mission and its mandate is to produce educational, engaging content around the topic and the theme of water. So, you know, its work will continue. We're working on a podcast series as a companion to the film. Um, so we can explore different ideas and topics in more detail over the next year. Um, I think a series is certainly there. We can see it, we can map it out. So once we've drawn a breath, um, that's probably next, I think, to explore that. Um, for Blue Tech, really the work never stops because there's always new innovations, new technologies, and that's what's exciting about it. And I think particularly the next 10 years, if you look to 2030, you're going to be a very interesting decade because of commitments corporations are making towards net zero because of the SDG six goals, um, because of the imminence or the urgency of response to climate change as well. So I, I don't think we're going to run out of things to look at in Blue Tech and we look forward to doing that. And for the, the film, as I say, I think there's probably, you know, perhaps a part two, and we'd love to hear from anyone that has stories or inspirational ideas. Seems like you have a pretty good, uh, a good lead on a lot of those stories as they, you know, you said they were coming up just everywhere as you were traveling for filming. Well, we do. We, we feel that 
you know, there's been no definitive series on water. You know, there have been definitive series on many things around natural history, but water is such a fundamental element, fundamental to the planet. If we thought about simply too much water, there's certainly, you know, an episode that could dive into that and look at sponge cities in China. Like, what is a sponge city? How does that work? Why do we build them? Why do we need them? How are Jakarta, or how is Jakarta in Indonesia dealing with the fact that the city is sinking and the sea level is rising? Same with Venice. So you could have a whole episode focused simply on this idea of too much. And then there could be another one on certainly food and water. And I also think the next 10 years would be about water off the planet, because if it's whether it's Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson, many people are trying to get to Mars and they're going to need to figure the water side of that out too. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, well, Paul, um, anything else you want to you wanna add uh, about just the process of the film, making the film or the film itself or just the state of uh, the world in terms of water? I think the key thing I, I took away from it is... Um, Something I learned at of all places a water conference where someone said, you know, human beings, we derive happiness from working together towards a common shared goal. And this is a great goal to work towards. And I think it motivates us. It inspires us to keep doing what we're doing. And there's a role for so many different people in being a part of this. So I think that's a key message is we're in this together and we can be part of the solution. Well, fantastic. Really appreciate all your time today, Paul. Hopefully we can uh, speak with you again in the future and we'll be talking about you're gearing up for your next film or your next big thing with Blue Tech Research. I really appreciate you being here today. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Amanda. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Paul O'Callaghan, co-producer of Brave Blue World, now on Netflix. More information about the movie and Paul's company, Blue Tech Research, is in the show notes. Please email me at amanda.holloway at xylominc.com to share feedback, show ideas, or to be a guest on the show.